and my father last year stood up for the rights of prisoners to be able to observe the right to fast. And for that, he was punished with two weeks of solitary detention. Hello and welcome to the USERF Spotlight podcast, a weekly podcast series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each week, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Now here is the host of our show, USERF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, to lead today's discussion. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. Today, we're going to focus on developments in the Central Asian country of Uzbekistan. Last month, we released a new report titled Uzbekistan's Religious and Political Prisoners Addressing a Legacy of Repression. The report estimates that more than 2,000 individuals remain imprisoned by the Uzbekistan government for peacefully practicing their religious beliefs. The report provides specific detail on 81 religious prisoners of conscience, many of whom are serving some of the longest politically motivated jail sentences in the world today. The report also provides a history of religious repression in Uzbekistan over the past three decades. The government's efforts at reform to address some of these abuses over the last five years or so. Uh, the legal provisions used to by the Uzbek government to detain uh, peaceful religious practitioners on various uh, vague charges of extremism, as well as the government's use of torture and other forms of abuse. To discuss these important findings, we have with us today Steve Swerdlow, the author of the report for USERF, and Babur Yusupov. Steve is currently an associate professor of the practice of political science and international relations at the University of Southern California and a former senior Central Asia researcher at Human Rights Watch. Babur is a partner at Milestone Partners in London and is the son of one of the 81 prisoners of conscience listed in the report, former Uzbek diplomat Kadir Yusupov, who remains wrongfully detained in prison as we speak. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us, uh, Dwight. Thanks. It's an honor, Dwight. Thank you. Great. Thank you again. Steve, why don't we start with you? If you could please share with our audience uh, some of the key findings uh, of your report and some of the context uh, that you uh, used to, to do the research. I already mentioned about 2,000 religious prisoners, which, which you report on. But why and under what charges does the Uzbek government detain these individuals and what conditions uh, do they face in prison? Well, thank you, Dwight. I just I want to recognize uh, what an honor it is to to be on the podcast today, and also, of course, with the son of uh, a real religious prisoner of concern, Kadir Yusupov, and his son here with us today, Babur Yusupov. And I think this is um, you know, a very uh, it, it's an important piece of research, not not because I wrote it, but because of the fate of of thousands of people that we're speaking about who are not in any way linked to violence or attempted violence. I want to say that at the very, very beginning, that at the heart of this research was the goal of providing some credible information about this very large population of religious prisoners in Uzbekistan. And as I mentioned in the report, it's something that has vexed and uh, you know protected 
presented particular problems, both for the human rights community and for the US government and other international actors for a long time, which was getting to the bottom, getting to the heart of this question of how many people are in prison in Uzbekistan on so-called religious extremism charges, and how many are still in prison despite the reforms that we have seen taking place over the past five years. And I also wanna recognize that the Uzbek government throughout the life of this project has been uh, fairly cooperative and granted me unprecedented access to meet with various government agencies like the prison administration, uh, like the Ministry of Internal Affairs, and answered a number of questions that helped uh, complete the picture. And another very important contribution here were the voices of human rights activists, human rights defenders, and the relatives like Babur of currently imprisoned individuals. So to turn to the findings, what we see is that over time, a population that at the height of this policy under the previous authoritarian president, Islam Karimov, that reached maybe around 7,000 or 10,000 peaceful Muslims, there have been releases. And our best estimate based on what we know about the prison system in Uzbekistan and the interviews conducted for this research lead us to conclude that while thousands have been released in the past five and even longer, uh, maybe six, seven years, the population is still significant. It's about 2,200 people, which is about 10% of Uzbekistan's prison population in total. And the types of abuses that we see here and that were, that were new pieces of information that came out in this research was that sentences of religious prisoners are extended arbitrarily. Now we used to know and, and, and think that the arbitrary extension of sentences were related to violations that prisoners allegedly commit. For example, um, not listening to the orders of a prison guard could lead you to get another three years or five years added to your sentence. Um, not properly cutting carrots in the prison kitchen could have resulted in, in, in a fine or a penalty. But what this research uncovered was that, in fact, this practice of extending sentences goes far deeper. And these 2,200 people or so that are imprisoned in Uzbekistan, many of them appear to be there in prison for 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, because, in fact, they've been resentenced on new charges of extremism while in prison. That means they've experienced trials. In, in prison, closed trials where they don't have access to counsel, which lead to these staggeringly long prison sentences, as I mentioned, 15, 20, 25 years, Nelson Mandela length sentences. So that was one of the main findings, new revelations of this research, is that that practice, which I call resentencing, is taking place, is still taking place. And I should again mention that by and large, these individuals, most of them are in prison since the time of the early 2000s or the first decade of, of the 21st century. So most of them relate to the cream of period. Some of them relate to sentences already handed down after President Mirzoyev has come to power. We have seen reforms taking place in the sphere of religion, a new law on religious freedom or a law on religion, which has made some of the environment more permissive somewhat more relaxed for religious freedom. But unfortunately, this issue of the criminal justice system of the prison population um, still leads us to some troubling findings. So staggering 
staggeringly long sentences. And in the cases of many of these prisoners, and we'll of course be speaking today about Qadir Yusupov in particular, many of these prisoners have experienced torture. Many of them have um, been denied due process. And sometimes we see multiple members of one family being put in prison. So I have at the very top of the report, a quote from someone I call Rustam R from Margilan in the Fergana Valley. And he says, and I, I met with him after he was released. He was in prison for almost 20 years. And he remembers, uh, he says, I still remember standing on the grass when they came to arrest me. Little did I know I was being taken away for over half my life. They wanted me to give up names of people in Hizbut Tahrir. That's a, an organization that the Uzbek government deems as extremist. When I refused to name names, I was beaten brutally. In just a year, five members of my family, including three brothers and two cousins, were arrested and sentenced to prison. Only hope kept me alive. And I, I think his words sum up part of the problem of this phenomenon of religiously motivated imprisonment. My answer has been long, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. But I think that uh, we're talking about a population of people that are peaceful and whose cases need to be reviewed um, in a very, very serious fashion and, and should, be, should, should hopefully uh, result in many of them being freed. Indeed. And of course, uh, you mentioned, and uh, as I mentioned earlier as well, uh, some of the longest uh, prison terms, some of the longest serving prisoners of conscience uh, that we've seen anywhere in the world, certainly on the religious prisoners of conscience uh, uh, front. But Balboa, let me turn to you. Your father's case is detailed in this report, uh, Kadir Yusupov. He was a diplomat uh, for the Uzbek government. In fact, he was permanent representative to the OSCE, the Organization's for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and a deputy ambassador to the United Kingdom. How is it that he is wrongfully imprisoned uh, to this day because of his religion or belief? Could you tell us uh, more about your father and what, what the context is, why he's in jail? Sure. Um, first of all, let me um, again say thank you to, uh, to you, Yusuf and Professor Sverdlov for um, for this very important report and uh, for giving the time uh, to air this, these very important issues. Um, my, father is, uh, my father is in prison at the moment in uh, prison colony number four in the city of Navoi, that's in Uzbekistan. And the reason why he um, was included in the report is because of his advocacy on behalf of other religious um, uh, prisoners um, and religious rights in his prison in Navoi. That the this specific prison is um, it's it has very harsh conditions. It is known there that uh, many of uh, that, that there is an unwritten rule that uh, religious prisoners uh, should not be allowed to practice religion openly. Um, and my father last year before COVID, that was sort of just the beginning of the COVID lockdown, which also happened uh, obviously in Uzbekistan and in his prison, he stood up for the rights of prisoners in April during the Ramadan to be able to observe the rights of, uh, to fast. And for that, he was punished. Uh, he was punished by um, with two weeks of solitary um, detention. Uh, he went on a hunger strike, which lasted five days. Um, and the in these... Uh, 
14, 15 days in solitary, he was kept in a cell, which was perhaps two meters by two meters, only had a metal chair, um, one mattress that was taken away. Everything was covered in dirt and, and uh, uh, insects and uh, rodents. And there was no toilet, but a hole in the, in, 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 in the ground. And that was only because he stood up very politely. He, he uh, when the, the, what the, who they call the master or the director of prison or the head of the prison um, gathered the prisoners around, he asked them if they had any issues, complaints, and uh, him, my father being the one of the elder uh, people there, uh, has politely asked to improve the, the working conditions. Many young prisoners have to work, those of working age have to work at, at a brick factory, which is very toxic, and they work five, six days a week for, for barely no pay at all, and for the, uh, for the rights to observe the Ramadan fast. And that, that's what happened. He himself has been in prison for nearly three years. Uh, the, uh, he was initially, well, he's imprisoned on charges of spying or treason. Uh, that is um, a whole different discussion, but it is it, it sort of sits with the other, it's Article 157, and it also has uh, similar problems when it comes to judicial issues and lack of fair trial and lack of any transparency when it comes to judicial matters, um, because they, they uh, like the, the, perhaps like some of the other um, articles that Professor Swerdlow has written about religious um, religious extremism or religious hatred or anti-constitutional activities, so-called. And so um, the uh, we've been fighting for his release for the last three years because he suffered from uh, incommunicado detention during pretrial, uh, no access to legal counsel, uh, threats, uh, torture, um, the, the sort of the whole gamut that the security services could throw at him. And he spent about a year in pretrial detention in um, in the state security services a prison in Tashkent in the basement of which five months was in Comunicado. Uh, so much so that the UN working group on arbitrary detention this May, um, after we filed the filing with them, uh, they've uh, decreed that my father is um, uh, arbitrarily detained, i.e. legally detained by the Uzbek authorities. And this UN body has requested the Uzbek government to immediately release my father, provide compensation. Um, and that was in May, but it hasn't happened yet. Well, thank you for sharing that background. And, and the good news is, obviously, he is not forgotten. Uh, and as you mentioned, the UN uh, arbitrary the, the working group has spoken out. Others have spoken out. Obviously, this report has profiled your father's case. Um, if we could turn now to the historical context of these kinds of detentions, Steve, perhaps you could describe the, the Uzbek government's historic relationship with Islam, uh, per se. You know, what laws and policies did, lo did long-term authoritarian president uh, Islam Karimov, as you referred to earlier, introduce uh, to newly independent Uzbekistan? And how did they evolve over time? And, and how has Uzbekistan's position in Central Asia and, and border with Afghanistan affected these policies over the years? I think it's, it's interesting that the particular historical moment we happen to have now in the last few months with what has taken place in Afghanistan, in some ways there's a little bit of a, of a search been completed um, as you know, when we trace the beginning of these policies of repression and of thousands of people, um, originally some of the justification that with long-serving authoritarian president Islam Karimov used 
was to protect Uzbekistan's border, from the chaos in neighboring in 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 the southern border, south of the border in Afghanistan, but all. Islam Karimov in the early 90s was trying to consolidate his rule. Of course, he was a, a leader in the mold of the Soviet leadership. He had been the Communist uh, uh, Party secretary, boss. So he was certainly building his policy of religious repression off of the Soviet model. And we see this even today in, in, in some of the approach of the government. But Karimov took a very hard line almost immediately in the early 90s, both crushing political opposition, but also importantly is where there's some irony that Karimov's first name is Islam. He saw political Islam and in Islam in general as posing a fundamental existential threat to, his, to the government's authority, which I think led to these hardline policies very early on, were exacerbated to some extent, by some legitimate concerns for security, of course, in 1999, that's the first watershed moment when you did have terrorist attacks take place in Tashkent, led to dozens of deaths, and gave the government, obviously, legitimate concern for safety and security. But those events were used almost immediately to justify a crackdown on thousands of peaceful Muslims. We saw... Um, in the wake of the 1999 uh, attacks, uh, Fergana Valley in Tashkent itself and in other parts of Uzbekistan, lots of people being swept up in raids. The, you know, some of the increased interest in different religious groups, like Botahrir, which is in the West is not designated a terrorist organization, but in Central Asia, I should just say this is an organization that talks about the establishment of a caliphate but does not support means to achieve it. There was a, a sense that these organizations and this ideology, because they were not subservient to the Uzbek government, posed a threat. And so you saw again thousands imprisoned, and this only grew um, grew worse over time. We had the Andijan 2005 when the Uzbek government forces surrounded a city square in the eastern city of Andijan, opening fire without warning on a large crowd of, uh, of largely peaceful, although there were some people armed in that crowd. So it was a complicated scenario, but ultimately the government response was disproportionate and excessive. And so we saw the ability of the international community to keep track of the numbers of prisoners, um, you know, more and more difficult as Uzbekistan became more and more closed, more isolated, cream of himself becoming more apparent up until his death in 2016. And you asked me about, you know, the trajectory over time. Of course, as I said, since his death and uh, the coming to power of, of, of Shafkat Mirziyoyev five years ago, there was a certain relaxation in policy on religion. We did see hundreds of thousands of prisoners released, although again, we don't know exactly how many in this category. We did see high profile political prisoners released. We also saw the government starting to open up the space, this expression, contests to read the Quran, um, more of an inclusion of the role of, of, of the mosque and of the, of the clerics, uh, of the muftiyat in overall society. And of course we've seen a rising interest in in religion in general in population. Um, but again, when it comes to the issue of prisoners, 
this is something where I see inertia, where we have not seen progress uh, that needs to take. And it's, it really stands in contrast with some of the other reforms in Uzbekistan, because as we've seen uh, about the Uzbek government proudly repatriating women and children from controlled territories in Syria and Iraq, that's something that even some Western European countries have need to do. So Uzbekistan got a lot of praise for, for taking that stance for seeking to rehabilitate or reintegrate uh, people that were in ISIS territories. But when it comes to this group of people who have been in prison for, in many cases, over 20 years, 25 years, there's a strong argument that um, since there is no evidence of violence, there needs to be a process, a mechanism to review these cases, case by case, individual by individual, and hopefully we'll see some further reforms in this realm, including with the release of, of uh, Babu Badir. Yes, and indeed. I mean, and, and Babur, let me turn to you. As the report mentions, as Steve was saying, President Mirza Yoyev has initiated a series of reforms since about 2016, including the release of certain categories of religious and political prisoners and the removal of over 20,000 independent Muslims and their relatives from a notorious blacklist of alleged uh, potential religious extremism. Um, but can you tell us uh, what is the status of the reform processes you see it now in Uzbekistan? Have things uh, really continued to improve? Well, I can, from our experience um, over the last three years, um, writing to the um, to the Ministry of uh, Prison Directorate, to the Ministry of Justice, uh, dealing with the courts, with the security services, the prison administration. Um, our experience has been, I would say, it's a bit like being in a Kafkaesque uh, uh, situation where every single time we raise any issue or complaint, we always get a response. There's always a bureaucratic mechanism, an audit trail, a paper comes back, sometimes from two, three different um, agencies or ministries. And for every single issue that we raise, whether it's torture, allegations of uh, impropriety, requests for medical assessment, the response comes back in various guises, but essentially, uh, upon reviewing your request, uh, no credible um, information has been gathered or uh, we've done the work and uh, we're satisfied with the results. And that applies even to, um, I've, been, um, I've been fortunate to be invited to, for instance, the UN Committee Against Torture um, periodic review uh, that took place just before the lockdown. And, and again, uh, under each case that uh, the, the UN experts raise, the response comes back. But look, we've done this. This is the macro data. And these are the numbers. And we've done the improvement. But they, it's, it's just they, they would never find any basis for anything. And, I, and, and that, that is very infuriating. And um, I mean, I, I can tell you from uh, even, even in the last month, my sister went to visit my father uh, last Sunday, and what we discovered was that he was uh, beaten up in prison on two different occasions in the last month and a half, September and October. Um, he lost two of his teeth. Uh, he thinks he had, he had a concussion because he had trouble sleeping. He has panic attacks. 
Um, the prison authorities deny that anything took place that, that justifies further medical intervention. They just told him, we won't fix your teeth. And despite, like, there was an overwhelming number of witnesses who said that he was attacked in the second incident and the first as well, um, the prison authorities essentially said, nope, uh, you know, have reviewed, nothing happened, uh, just an incident, case closed. And when it comes to sort of the overall situation, again, from experience for what, my, uh, what our father tells us, uh, in prison overall, and there are thousands of prisoners there, um, yes, commissions come, various commissions come from the Uzbek parliament and from the prosecutor general's office, and often, essentially, any sort of troublemakers, those, those prisoners, quote unquote, who raise concerns, they just get hidden in a, in, a, in a TV room or something, or they get sent away for punishment just at the time when the commission is walking past. So, so they don't make any sort of complaints. And even if they do, they're told that, look, those guys come and go back to capital, but you are, we are here on the ground and we are the prison administration. So... Um, there are often cases of collective punishments, for instance, um, some of the religious prisoners, uh, often they, well, most of them, when they wake up, they, they need to uh, do the process of ablution and cleansing. During winter months, uh, suddenly there would be the, the, the heating would be switched off um, because allegedly because of the, some of these prisoners doing the, the ritual, and that sets off other prisoners who might not be, um, you know, who might not need it against the, the so-called religious prisoners. Uh, and that just happens sort of organically and doesn't get reported. Um, yeah, so often behind, behind the PR and behind the big macro data, where they, when they say things are improving, what we see on the ground is, is very different. Indeed. I, you know, I just want to pose a final question to you both. I, obviously, a mixed picture. We see some efforts, certainly, by the government, yet we hear these cases in particular. And thank you for, for providing some of these details of this specific case of your father, uh, Babur. But let me uh, put this final question to you. With, with, uh, what in your mind is holding the Uz Uz Uzbek government back from releasing more prisoners of conscience, uh, including your father, Babur. But, and has the rise of the Taliban in neighboring Afghanistan changed their calculus uh, with the extremism issue and knowing what's on their border? And, and you've alluded to some of the UN uh, bodies that are engaged. What can the international community and specifically the US government uh, do to help? Uh, who, who would like to jump in first on that? I, I, I wouldn't want to speculate about the, what, is, what is holding back the Uzbek government. Um, we've, been, uh, we've been trying to, uh, to work with uh, NGO partners and, and lawyers and, uh, and the media. Um, and uh, for, 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 for now, through almost three years, I think, I think what's important now, at least in the case of my father, is that we have a, a judgment by an an independent UN panel of five experts uh, that says very clearly that has reviewed the, the evidence from both sides, not just from ours, but the Uzbek government had the time to, to respond to, to, uh, to the allegations. The Uzbek government didn't want to respond in the first place. They ignored it. And then after the deadline, they suddenly sent their response, which, which the working group took into account, but said it was late. There was no in their um, responses. The UN working group—that's the—that's the decision. It says that um, 
no due, um, the, the trial was uh, essentially a farce. There was no evidence presented. There was no habeas corpus. There was essentially a, an intent by the authorities to, to assume his guilt and to, conf to pressure my father into confession, which he never did. He said he's innocent. So I hope that now that we have this decision, it, the UN essentially has done the heavy lifting and the international community and the US government can, can work with the Uzbek authorities and encourage them to implement the international obligations that Uzbekistan has signed up for. Uzbekistan is a newly elected member of the Human Rights Council, the UN, and I think it would be, it would be a good sign, along with other prisoners, um, for them to actually fulfill the, um, the specifications in the international obligations. Thank you. Steve, why don't we give you the last word on this? Thanks, Toy. You know, and I would begin with what Babur was saying about Uzbekistan's membership on the UN Human Rights Council. You know, the president himself earlier this year gave an address to the UN Human Rights Council, and there was a significant amount of effort placed by, by the government on becoming a member um, to the august and, and central human rights body in the international system. And I think that that alone places on Uzbekistan a higher obligation to meet its human rights obligations, to meet its religious freedom obligations. And so I think I, I, I think addressing head on the um, both the obligations, but also the, the failings, the the inaccuracies, the whether they're whether it's historical inertia, um, whether it's a reluctance by the security services or the criminal justice officials to give up some of the power that they've had um, in keeping these people in prison. And there are a number of reasons we may look to for why these people continue to be in prison despite any evidence of their involvement in, in, in criminal activity or violence. But whatever the reason is, I, I think this can actually only serve Uzbek government's uh, stated reform plans if they were to, again, uh, update the criminal code, which includes these provisions that Babur helpfully mentioned on extremism, on terrorism, on so-called anti-constitutional activity, uh, charges which have led to the imprisonment of thousands of people. I think by addressing, updating the criminal code, addressing those failings, those human rights abuses, the government will of course, burnish its credentials and reform its standing at the Human Rights Council. But more importantly, this would actually contribute to stability. It would contribute to um, security objectives as well, because as we know, the Uzbek government is legitimately concerned about what's happening. And all of Central Asian countries are very concerned about what's happening in neighboring Afghanistan. And of course, they want to firm up their security. But one way to do that is to protect human rights. It's to strengthen the democratic process to, to the extent it exists. And, and that can only be done, I think, when you release people that shouldn't be in prison. That's the primary, um, I think, agenda item is to make sure the people that have been deprived of their liberty, who have some of whom have been tortured, have their day in court, are rehabilitated. And that process of looking at this difficult history that Islam Karimov's presidency created and led to, I think dealing with that legacy, dealing with that history could actually allow Uzbekistan to move forward and deal with the challenges of this current moment. Um, uh, again, uh, difficulties in the region 
and address it head on. If, if not, I fear that we'll continue to see the security services in a very narrow way dictating policy, which can only um, lead to a lack of trust by uh, an overwhelmingly religious population. Um, again, religious religious belief on the rise in Uzbekistan. So as that happens, there has to be a relationship between the state and society that is regulated through human rights obligations, through the rule of law. And so that's why I hope to see Qadir Yusupov released. I hope to see all the 81 prisoners profiled in this report released, but also a, a larger conversation about criminal justice reform, the criminal code, and religious freedom. And we'll have to leave it right here for today, but I know we've just hit on the tip of the iceberg. I want to thank again uh, Steve Swardlow and Babor Yusupov uh, for their insights. Uh, as uh, many of our listeners know, Uzbekistan is a country that uh, USERF has recommended most recently in April of this year that it be placed on the State Department's special watch list for severe violations of religious freedom. Of course, to learn more about USERF's work on Uzbekistan and our related policy recommendations to the U.S. government, you can visit our website for more information. Of course, uh, you know, the, the recent report that Steve authored, uh, I'd highly commend that. Uh, that can also be found on our website. As always, thanks for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.